Chapter Twenty One of The Untempered Wind by Joanna Wood. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bruce Peary. We are the voices of the wandering wind, which seek for quiet and quiet can never find. Lo, as the wind is, so is mortal life a moan, a sob, a sigh, a storm, a strife next morning philip hardman left mrs dean's early he was leaving by the first train from the little flag station which was at the far end of the village besides he was determined to see myron holder mrs dean's had endeavored to dissuade him from this but he was firm and recognizing this mrs dean suggested that she accompany him upon his mission but he stated gently but firmly that he could achieve better results alone mrs deans felt bitterly aggrieved at being treated thus for behind his gentle words she read a settled determination to keep her out of it as she phrased it to herself she bade him good-bye however with well-affected geniality as he stood upon her doorstep but the shallow smile died very soon and a malevolent expression replaced it upon her fat features i'll speak to brother fletcher about this she said that hardman is sorely puffed up in his own conceit and vainglorious well by himself he can do nothing she concluded piously but whether it was the absence of the lord or herself from hardman's side that was going to militate against his success she left undetermined there might also have been some doubt in the mind of the impartial hearer as to whether she was glad or sorry that his mission was likely to be a failure certainly her tone was not indicative of any great grief she betook herself indoors and set about preparing a fresh supply of country dainties for the reverend fletcher philip hardman's face changed also after he turned it from mrs dean's self-contented countenance and the new expression was not far removed from one of disgusted contempt and it must be confessed a somewhat sneering bitterness made his keen eyes sombre he had asked mrs deans the night before who myron holder was and had been told told but in such a fashion mrs deans evil words still stung his heart with shame for his kind he felt as though one had smitten his lips with nettles and the pious speeches with which mrs deans had besprent her tale bah it was like sprinkling a weak disinfectant over a heap of filth it was indeed the poison of asps to hear scripture nay the very words of his master so defiled well hardman compressed his lips and hurried on the morning was sweet and calm the shoreless air very clear and still and little by little his spirit attuned itself to the hour shred by shred the mantle of bitterness fell from him the memories of the evening mingled with the hopes of the morning into a draught that was very sweet to him when he reached the cottage door his eyes were exalted his lips calm his heart confident the door was open and through it he saw a bare room the walls stained a deep yellow with ochre a carpetless floor comfortless but clean a square table with a coarse white cloth covering it stood in the middle of the room upon it was some food myron sat there alone 
but there was another plate laid beside which stood a battered tin mug all this he took in at a glance and then his eyes fastened upon the woman's face she was as yet unconscious of his presence she sat at the table in such a position that the profile of her face was outlined sharply against the bright yellow of the walls her face as he beheld it thus for the first time in clear daylight struck him with swift remembrance of an exquisite picture he had once seen a meek-mouthed madonna painted on a bright brass plaque there was the same pose of head the same heavy knot of nut-brown hair the same outward sweep of the lashes from the same drooped lids the same exquisite line where the cheek softened to the throat but alas there was no heavenly nimbus round this living head no holy glow of happy maternity no pure halo of womanhood at that moment myron turned towards the doorway and as her eyes met his his imagination suddenly supplied the aureole that before she seemed to lack and in completion of the picture a stray line or two of poetry came back to him with all the happy force of applicability eh sweet you have the eyes men choose to paint you know and just that soft turn in the little throat and bluish colour in the lower lid they make saints with he started as he realised that he was comparing the madonna to this unblessed mother an ideal of saintly beauty to this sinning one but all in an instant there came to him a swift certainty that this was not the face of an evil woman this woman bore in her countenance the indelible lines of pain and suffering the ineffable traces of bodily and mental anguish she had been bowed beneath the burden of woman's inalienable heritage of agony had lived through the gethsemane of childbirth and won the heights of motherhood's golgotha a child's grave but in all this remember there is nothing vile it is only infinitely pitiful whilst he gazed and thought these things swiftly she had risen from her place and stood with clasped hands and down-bent head so like a prisoner awaiting sentence that he felt a great throb of pity he took a step forward and held out his hand i am going to the train he said but i came away early that i might see you you are very good she faltered but she hesitated but what he urged gently holding both her hands and looking down at her do you know who i am she asked yes he answered i know everything you asked mrs deans she said in an incredulous voice he flushed at the tone it told so clearly that she fully understood what mrs deans would say and somehow it seemed to link him with mrs deans as if he and that worthy woman stood on one side of a river and myron holder alone on the other he could not bear that yes but i always judge for myself he said quickly oh she said you are she stopped but gave the note of those swift glances of ineffable gratitude that had so often stirred homer's heart and looking at her thus 
Hardman forgave her everything, for love pardons the unpardonable past, and this man, from that moment, loved her, although he did not yet know it. Your child was very dear to you, he said, glancing at the table where the two plates stood, although there was but one to sit at the board. Ah, so dear, she answered. Then, after a moment's pause, she went on swiftly. Oh, you can understand what it was. Surely you can. You are so good. He was everything to me, absolutely everything. The thought of him kept me from greater sin. I was nearly blind with weariness, and the way was getting dimmer and dimmer to my eyes. But his laugh showed me where the right road lay, and when I found it again, his steps kept me company. Oh, can you think what it is to see the only creature, the only living thing in all the world that loves you, die? She looked at him, an interrogation so poignant as to be imperative in her eyes. Yes, he said, we are two lonely souls, Myron. In all the wide earth there is none who cares whether I live or die. I am sorry, she said. Only you are so good, you can have friends for the seeking. As for me, I am not fit to be anyone's friend. I had one friend here, but he is dead too. She added the last sentence with a strange, swift sense of justice. Even though Homer was dead, she could not bear that he be classed with those others who had been so cruel. Yes, answered Hardman, I heard of him. Did she tell you that he died to save Mai's life? She asked. Yes, she told me, he answered. There was a pause. Then Myron said, It was so good of you to come. He noticed the harsh tones of her voice. Have you a sore throat? He asked. No, she said, but my child died of suffocation. His throat was swollen with inflammation and croup, and when he tried to speak to me his voice was hard, like mine is now. It made my own throat ache, and ever since the pain has been there, and I have spoken in this way. Thus, simply, Myron told of that marvel, that extraordinary instance of the power of love. For this was indeed so in myron's case had been made manifest one of those marvellous mysteries of the human mechanism that now and again thrills the scientist with a burning zeal to discover the real relation between mind and matter to enter the penetralia of humanity and learn its secret that desolate night in the cottage the mother-heart apprehended each pang of the choking child and the mother endured in her own organism a like agony how sad to think she had no divine license to do so how strange that such a love should spring from shame hardman's mind grasped the significance of her words upon the instant for a moment the realization of this woman's strength held him silent then he remembered her loneliness and bent towards her myron he said Will you be my friend? Oh, do you mean it? she asked breathlessly. Assuredly, he said. 
then once more myron gave her hands as a seal of friendship there was only a short time left after that a few moments of earnest prayer from philip hardman a few words asking her to go to the rest of the meetings a brief promise from her and briefer acknowledgments of his goodness faltering between her sobs then hardman had to say good-bye and his form was already vanishing from sight before myron realized that she was once more alone philip hardman hurried to the station and caught his train the first stage of his journey was short only some fifty miles to the city where he was to meet the reverend mr fletcher he found him at the depot ready to go to jamestown in a few hurried words hardman told him of myron holder of her sin her punishment her sorrow he commended her to mr fletcher's prayers and asked him to preach so that her diffident heart might find some message in his words mr fletcher promised and expressed with some little emphasis a hope that hardman's own labors might be blessed then he departed his train was just pulling out when hardman ran up to the open window by which mr fletcher had settled himself you'll be gentle with her brother fletcher she is indeed a bruised reed there was no time for answer mr hardman did not witness the scorn with which this advice no entreaty was received he stood looking after the swiftly vanishing train somewhat sadly then rousing himself went to find out about the train that was to take him to his new charge philip hardman's father had been a mechanic a lifelong worker in one of those sooty befouling foundries where the great furnaces gleam like so many mouths of the pit where all day long there is the roar of flames the blast of hot air the clang of metal the heat of hades the hiss of molten iron the angry flight of sparks struck from huge anvils all the haste and fury and dumb brutish endurance of men working at the top notch of physical exertion rushing hither and thither like demons before the fires or clad in grotesque masks and armor turning great masses of glowing cooling metal so that the steam hammers may forge them into shape in this atmosphere philip hardman's father had spent all his life since he was a little lad carrying water to the workers water in which flying sparks quenched themselves hissing it would be no wonder if from a race of fathers such as these blackened workers gnome-like children were to be born all action and no thought swift tireless inhuman but these men darting about in the glare of the dusky fires like devil-ridden spectres had some of them time for thought indeed the man who moves unmoved amid these masses of incarnate heat steps over and around streams of liquid fire watches those infernal lakes plumbago shored which one single drop of water converts into death-dealing volcanoes and stands beside a torrent of molten iron as it flows from the crucible ready to dam its resistless tide on the instant may well be credited with capacity if not time for thought 
to philip hardman's father during those long hot hours of breathless haste there came ideas distorted meagre and ill-developed perhaps which when he left the works at night pallid-faced beneath the grime still bore him company nebulous visions of great labor-saving devices by which men forever would be exempt from the dreadful toil that scorched both soul and body there was many a rich germ dormant in these ideas of his but lacking the cohesion of long uninterrupted thought and wanting the quickening of accurate knowledge for there lay the older philip hardman's great stumbling-block to perfect his inventions he required a knowledge of chemicals and of different forces and their application and an insight into the cause of the effects he wished to produce how blindly painfully and heartbrokenly he toiled after this knowledge no one ever fully appreciated his son long years after his death realized it in some fashion he did not ask assistance of any one for he feared with the traditional dread of the inventor lest the one from whom he sought advice should steal his idea he saved to buy books that were useless to him and pored over their misleading pages with eyes from which all moisture seemed scorched away until the very eyeballs themselves felt hot and hard but he kept them painfully fastened upon those pages from which he strove to wrest a secret they did not hold to learn those things which would enable him to set free forever his fellows from the necessity of enduring that soul-baking heat perhaps his invention even if perfected would not have compassed all he dreamed it would for he was prone to endow it almost with thinking as well as executive powers and to think of it as animated by a great zeal for mankind as with its nerveless phalanges it performed those awful tasks perhaps there may be greater ideals than the thought of setting men free from one of the most terrible and exhaustive forms of labor but none knew better than this man the terrors of heat none understood more clearly how the mind narrowed as the body shrank before the stifling blasts and after all if we all set ourselves to alleviate the special misery we understand there would be fewer misshapen lives in the world well how many a vulgar cato has compelled his energies no longer tameless then to mould a pin or fabricate a nail philip hardman's mother was a woman of a hysteric nature who scarcely thought enough of this world to make her husband and children comfortable in it the children were narrow-chested weak little creatures they heard from her lips terrible tales of the wrath to come couched in symbolism they well understood for their father worked daily amid just such scenes as their mother depicted the abode of the damned to be the parallel between the hades her words pictured forth and her husband's life never struck mrs hardman 
even when her husband died going to his grave a broken-hearted man barren of achievement leaving not one labor-saving device not one little bolt or wheel called by his name she did not regret or realize the hard life he had had nor think she might have made it easier she only tortured herself daily by wondering if she had sufficiently represented to him his lost condition it is to be feared that she was more interested in convincing herself that she was free of responsibility than that he was saved in time however she began to feel that she had done her best and feeling it would be too much like them catholics to pray for the soul of a dead man she turned all her attention to her own doubtless she was right and yet is it not a beautiful myth to think that prayer from a loving heart may benefit those we love even if they have passed beyond these voices if we must needs pick and choose delusions why not take those unselfish ones so beautiful if inutile is it not an idea really worthy of a divinity to think that by our self-flagellations our loved ones may be freed from stripes are there not some of us who would gladly thus requite debts of incalculable benefits received some of us who would dare accept even a hell to know our loved one had a heaven philip hardman's father had belonged to various insurance societies such as workmen form for mutual benefit it would have sufficed to keep life in all the children until such time as they became self-supporting but one by one they died until only philip was left he worked in the pattern shop in the works until he was twenty when his mother died then he took the residue of his father's insurance money and his own savings and went to school it is not strange that he should choose the ministry he had inherited all his father's love for his kind and much of his mother's fervor of purpose added to which he had his own birthright of lofty idealism but he had also something of the weaknesses of both parents his mother's instability clung to him and made him vacillating and the secrecy of his father in regard to his inventions survived in him under the guise of habitual reticence he was deeply impressed with the sadness of life and thought he saw in religion the one panacea for pain besides he too wished to flee from the wrath to come he had been preaching some seven years when he visited jamestown and during that time he had bitten through to the ashes more than once the fruit he held against his lips was losing even its fair seeming his charges were always amid the poor and he was beginning to rebel against a doctrine that accused a divine being of all the cruelties life holds the poor have the gospel preached to them he had once looked upon as the expression of divine benefaction now it struck him as being redolent of a peculiar and brutal sarcasm philip hardman had all his life thought of his religion as only true when environed in an atmosphere of severity 
one day just after a tumult of doubt and a corresponding influx of faith and confidence he went into a roman catholic cathedral the exact reason for this is hard to divine perhaps it may have been some mad thought of attacking rome in her own citadel at any rate he went in and sat down looking about him with righteous contempt at the idolatrous images in their carven niches his religious dreams had ever been barren of that ecstasy which springs from the grandeur and dignity of gorgeous ceremonials sonorous chanting vibrating music he had never experienced the breathless hush of suspense between the intoned invocation of priests and the thrilling choral response he had never at the clear-toned ringing of a bell let fall his head and abased his spirit but now he experienced an emotion such as possessed the monks of the rosy cross when to their fervid vision the stony walls of their cells parted and disclosed vistas of heavenly beauty he adored with the fervor of the true fanatic the church saw her for the first time in the light of a beautiful mistress to be worshipped alone for herself her beauty her charm her power philip hardman left the cathedral his eyes kindled his step light he had had doubts of his love but they were all gone now he had been dwelling apart from her he had but heard echoes of her voice he had never seen her as he should have seen her at home mystical with dim subdued and vaporous light clad in gorgeous vestments incensed with heavenly odors irradiate with a hundred colors as the sunlight fell through the painted windows and the altar lights smote answering flames from the gold of the altar served by humble servitors made holy by their service he had regarded her as a poor bride without a wedding garment chilled by the cold breath of the world abashed by the insulting sneers of the ungodly he now beheld her as she was a queen upon a throne in all the regal magnificence of her regal state he was no longer the cherisher of a feeble flame striving to make it shine in darkness he was a humble slave of a great lamp blessed if the farthest reaching rays from the sacred centre of light shone upon his unworthy head or gilded his outstretched hands he had thought of his creed pitifully as a torn leaf out of an old book trampled in the dirt there was none of that here no apology no plea there was only a triumphant paean of a glorious creed a sad mourning over those that were without it this spiritual exaltation working upon his eager nature imparted to him a physical stimulus exhilarating and strange he strode along vigorously he felt that he was strong and fleet in spirit mind and body he walked on the day waned distinct thought had long since departed his mood which in an oriental would have induced the coma of the hashish eater prompted him hazily to form great plans for the good of his kind the good of his kind no the glory of the church 
he followed few of these plans to any conclusion they ended as they had begun in nebulous imaginings of glory and as glory is easily transferable from the worshipped to the worshipper the ending of his dreams included a cloud of incense to himself the incense of approval admiration and the sweet savour of self-inflicted martyrdom he walked on pitiably unaware of the saint simeon stylites attitude he had assumed night dimmed down the wind rose dead elm leaves were blown across his path rustling underfoot the night wind chill with first frosts aroused him with a shiver to remember where he was he found himself in the country long vistas of barren fields stretched out before him a dreary panorama the gray sky was darkened by crows flying silently towards their nightly roosts he passed pools of lifeless water choked with sodden leaves a laborer slouched by a laborer from the railway going home content because he had earned double pay for a sunday's work the odor of decaying vegetables somewhere near struck painfully upon hardman's senses this he thought with disgust was the odor of nature of the world the night suddenly dropped down from the clouds and the darkness urged him to seek shelter he approached a cottage he observed dimly finding his way to it up an uneven lane bordered by a fantastic fence of uprooted stumps whose ragged branch-like roots twisted and distorted stood out in solid black masses against the insubstantial mist of the night he shuddered it seemed to his supersensitive fancy that these grotesque shapes were huge simulacra of the animalculae that the microscope discovers in water his muscles shrank as he imagined these huge shapes unseen but not unseeing writhing through the air flourishing their weird forms over and around his head embracing him with their elastic antennae and moving with him encircled in their horrible impalpable embrace with what devilish skill they swept nearer and nearer to him avoiding him by a hair's breadth and perceiving how his spirit shrank from their approach he gazed up into the night striving to see there the dreadful shapes his fancy had woven into a dante-like vision the side glimpses his eyes held of the fantastic forms of the roots projected themselves upon the curtains of the night before him his breath quickened he felt stifled he withdrew his gaze from the clouds and fastened it upon his path which to his distorted fancy seemed to contract until it narrowed down to an impassable barrier of threatening twining arms he stumbled on as he staggered across the threshold of the cottage he brushed through a mass of dried sweet grass cut down and left to wither in the pathway its snuff-like odor brought back the incense of the afternoon with a strong revulsion of feeling he threw off alike the sensuous charm of the odor and the horrid phantasmagoria that his imagination had conjured up he knocked at the door 
feeling a self-disgust that amounted almost to physical nausea. Philip Hardman after this was especially bitter in his sermons against Rome, her priests, her altars, her incense, her teachings. He regarded himself as having escaped, hardly by the skin of his teeth, from the clutches of the scarlet woman that sitteth upon the seven hills, and besought his hearers oft, with all his own peculiar eloquence, to keep themselves withdrawn from the temptations of Rome, of which he avowed almost with tears he had felt the power. This experience has no bearing upon the story of Myron Holder, save inasmuch as it indicates the emotional instability of Philip Hardman. Poor Myron. End of chapter 21